Hello, Mr. Krasopoulos. Are you happy to introduce yourself for our audience? So I'm a heart surgeon uh, working in Oxford. I joined Oxford almost 80 years ago. I started my career in cardiac surgery at late 1990s. I've gone through the process of training in the UK and in North America. I became a consultant back in 2008, which shows how old I am. I, I'm involved with uh, adult cardiac surgery, primarily, and especially I'm doing uh, complex coronary artery surgery, complex aortic surgery, arrhythmia surgery, and minimally invasive surgery. I'm involved with about four universities, teaching undergraduates, and I'm also involved with the higher education of postgraduates and uh, people in training into cardiothoracic surgery. Thank you. For Incision UK in February, this is Heart Month. So we would like to talk a little bit about heart health and maybe talk about prevention, talk about um, what you feel people should be aware of. Now, with regards to prevention, cardiac uh, disease is a disease of aging along with everything else. So as we all age, we're all going to get a degree of um, heart disease. Is that uh, because our coronaries are aging, because our valves are aging, because our heart is aging and starting getting more atrial fibrillation? We're all going to age and we're all going to develop heart disease to a degree or another. Now, what are possible things that are achievable uh, that we could do in order to uh, push the time when the disease becomes so significant that we need to do something about, um, it has come. Then things that we can do is, of course, stop smoking. If you smoke, don't smoke. And uh, look after your uh, health to the best you can, uh, so much physically, but uh, also in relation to the uh, quality of the food you, that you take and the quantity of the food you take. It's important also if you are diabetic or become diabetic to keep your diabetes under control because diabetes is another thing that is going to increase the speed by which your coronary arteries are aging. So uh, if you keep your diabetes under control, then um, you will push that day that your coronaries will age to the degree that you may need an intervention as further away from you as possible. And can you tell me um, what are sort of, as a cardiac surgeon, what are the some of the maybe challenges that um, you see, whether it's with patients um, or it's or maybe a more systematic approach like what has a cardiac surgeon what are right now your challenges as a clinician or a researcher or an educator or all three uh, as a clinician uh, the challenge is in relation to offering patient care uh, which is extremely good in the Western world in comparison to developing or underdeveloped countries. Uh, of course, people in the Western world, they do not appreciate how good they have it. 
Um, but um, still, there are issues in certain countries with relation to staffing uh, and resources, uh, despite being in the Western world. So um, probably from the clinician's perspective, currently this is the most um, pressing issue that need to be resolved. And of course, it's, uh, the, another pressing issue will be the demand because we in the Western society live in an uh, ever-aging population and because cardiac surgery is a disease of the over 50s, really, then by definition, the demand will increase. Uh, and as cardiac surgery is a specialty of, um, that requires a lot of years, many years of training, um, requires a lot of effort, uh, stamina, resilience from the person who does it, uh, not many people are willing to do it. Uh, so yes, it's um, in respect to cardiac surgery, we'll face recruitment issues which are a lot more uh, evident that's if you go to America, uh, US or North America in general, uh, because the more time it takes you to uh, become uh, a surgeon um, as a consultant uh, or a staff surgeon, then uh, that costs time and money, the person who does it. Uh, and uh, not many people are willing to devote the time and the money required to achieve that. Uh, with regards to research, uh, research is money. Uh, if you have money, you do research. Uh, again, there are less and less people willing to do research nowadays um, because it takes two, three years out of your time. And unless you do it as uh, a job, um, so you can either do research or clinical work. Um, it's very difficult to do uh, both to the standards required. So if you're a clinician, uh, you do minimal really research, or if you're a researcher, you're doing a minimal amount of clinical work. Uh, you have to divide those two. And as a educator, what do you feel are sort of the challenges in cardiothoracic surgery? So you were saying that it's quite, it takes, a, the training is long and um, demand is going to increase. So do you feel like for the people who, who you are training, what are the challenges for them right now? The challenges for them is that they, I'm training them primarily based on things of the past and they're going to be working in the future. Uh, so think of the past, big incisions and macroscopic surgery. Think of the future will be small incision, minimally invasive approaches, assisted surgery. Um, so we have to change the way we treat and we educate the people. Uh, we should be educating not based on what we do or how we are trained, but based on what they expect to be doing and how they expect to perform in the years to come. So the training has to change uh, a lot in order for the young people coming through to be able to achieve something uh, that's going to stay with them for the next 30 or 40 years. 
uh, and uh, the education of the training would change. When I was in training, I could perform, let's say, cardiac surgery um, under supervision or without supervision and all that stuff. And I had a very big incision where I could see what I'm doing, I had time in my hands. Now, there is no time on your hands. Um, the incision is very small. Uh, you cannot really do it. So you have to work with augmented reality um, and uh, assisted reality in order to educate the new generations. The seniors are very small. The demand from patients and the system has increased, which means that the accountability is uh, greater, making it difficult to train people. And the mortality and morbidity, even of complex operation, has dropped so far down. Let's say in Oxford now, the cardiac surgery probably can be offered with a mortality of 1, 1.5% for all comers, which means that training people, or by definition, even under the best conditions of training and supervision, is exposing to patients to a higher risk, which means that even 1% increase, which is a 100% increase to 1%, uh, is an, probably an unacceptable risk to patients in the system. Um, so things have to change in relation to training, but these changes should start from the way that the training is delivered by the systems who control it, like the right colleges of the various societies. Thank you so much. That's really interesting. And so to sort of continue there, so those are sort of the improvement that have to happen for the next, so, so for the current trainee and for the next generation of cardiothoracic surgeon. So those improvements, um, what what kind of, of improvement then you would want to see for yourself as a clinician and for yourself as a researcher? Because you said that some of the challenges were so for a researcher were obviously money to fund for the research for the research and and for the clinician was that the, the demand which was, was rising up. So what are sort of the improvement then that you would like to see in research and as a clinician and um, and sort of what are the improvements that you've already seen from the time you were a trainee or you've just started as a consultant up to now? That's a very complex question because I don't think you can answer it um, in a simple way. Uh, and that is because the system up until now is built to support a certain way of thinking uh, and a certain way of action. Now, we live in a fast pace where probably the establishment and the legs where that stands, uh, which were built for 1940s, 50s or 60s, way of thinking, probably they will start crumbling. We need, you need to rebuild the whole, the whole process um, but the people who have the power to do that, and usually those are the ones that in their sixth or seventh decade of their life, they need to probably allow younger generations to take the command and uh, inflict the change. Uh, there is a lot of 
balance, power balance issue here, uh, which will prevent things to evolve as fast as the technology or the surrounding information dictates. So when, if you look, let's say, the way that we educate medical students, uh, they're educated on information, on knowledge, learning, exposure to patients, but uh, if you go into the future, fast paced 10 years, 15 years down the line, you have um, uh, AI uh, letting you know about what potentially the disease will be or the treatment will be. You could have computers communicating across the globe in different institutions, interrogating all the databases available in a couple of minutes, talking to other hospitals in a couple of minutes, finding out how many patients were treated with the same disease across the globe and what is the outcome of those patients today, and advising the clinician on what is appropriate um, treatment plan for today. Uh, and that is evidence-based and current evidence-based practice. Because if any medic today says, oh, I'm, I'm practicing medicine on evidence-based, probably is practicing medicine on history because you cannot really be informed of the current practice at all times and in real time where the artificial intelligence can. So all of these things will evolve um, and it will evolve very fast. Um, you will have computers taking over from clinicians in diagnosis. Uh, let's say we have AI diagnosing pneumothoraces in Oxford at the moment. So you may find I know, the, the potential use of radiologists or other specialties dropping. Um, and all of this will affect the way you train people. Because if you want to become radiologists, maybe you find yourself into being trained by a computer rather than another radiologist, or uh, you will be there to advise the computer for how to do it. Uh, equally, you may need a robot who is a lot steadier than me, a lot more precise than me, performing an astrosis. So things will change. So it, it's what's really striking here is that you're really connecting sort of what's going on right now in terms of technology and advances and all the debates which are sort of happening in the medical community with how you think and feel um, they could actually enhance and improve uh, your specialty and, and sort of the care that you can bring to your patient. Yeah, I don't think that uh, you should, uh, in the modern world, you shouldn't be talking about specialties anymore. Uh, you shouldn't be talking about cardiology and cardiac surgery uh, or um, radiology. You should um, have specialties based on disease. So you have a specialty, um, a trained doctor uh, special with a subspecialty interest in treating autoimmune disease. Whatever that is, TAVI, percutaneous, open, uh, so he makes the call and the judgment on what is the best treatment option possibly for that particular patient. So you take away the conflicts that currently exist in between specialties on who is the best. So when, when you take the conflict away, then the patient takes the best treatment of the person who can deliver everything. Um, and 
you have to see how things will evolve when it, when you, you you then you have to change the entire system of training people because you don't gonna go you're not gonna go down the route of one specialty or another but you end up uh, being a specialist for a certain disease of what that accounts and then you become more dependent in, to other people next to you who are treating something next to you. So you can treat the aortic valve, then somebody else has to come and treat the coronaries. So you have the, uh, the um, I wouldn't call it a teamwork, because teamwork means that I can have the, the capacities interchangeable. People in the team can actually do all the jobs at the same time. Um, this is a more of a group work where where different individuals, high experts, work together for the benefit of the patient. Now, ultimately, if you add augmented reality, robots, uh, various other things, AI into the equation, patients are patients and they're humans. So you will need to have the human component that will never go away within the doctors and then the capacity to deliver the treatment to that subspecial field to the best they can. The, the delivery may not happen from doctors, may happen from, from a computer. I think personally, I think that the, one of the easiest, let's say, operations that can easily go into computers is the tablet. Yeah, because it doesn't do anything, it just pushes a, a wire to the heart that any computer can do and then push the valve to the heart that any computer can do, and then decides how up or down it can go and blow a balloon and release the valve. Any computer can do. So, in a way, when you're you actually having the robots and you have the computers and you have the information flowing in real time across the globe, doctors, they will be treating more patients than humans, and then they will be there to mitigate or be the intermediate in between the patient and the machines in inverted comma, who potentially will be delivering more of the care in the future. Thank you so much. So um, I would like to touch a little bit on, I know you're a male in a man-dominated field, but it's soon going to be International Women's Day. And so I would like to ask you a question about uh, training and women in cardiothoracic surgery in the UK, since that's um, where you are based. Mm -hmm. And I would like to know, do you feel like um, cardiothoracic surgery is becoming a bit more open to women? To women? Do you feel like there are a bit more trainees? Do you think it's a specialty which could see sort of an uptake in more gender equality? Or what, what is your thought on that? You have to appreciate that. Let's say when I was... When I became into the training post for cardiac surgery, you know, you should have had a PhD and you should have had so much experience beforehand and you should have done this and that and that beforehand and then you're aiming for six or seven years in training and the fellowship and everything else. And you add all these things. You do not become, let's say, in UK, a staff surgeon or a consultant before the age of 38 having worked really hard. Now, women, they're humans. 
Okay, they have potentially they may have to have you know babies or have children, and unfortunately the man cannot deliver the baby. So one or two years or maybe three years added up to, to, to 38, you become 41. So a lot of women may be willing to go into cardiac surgery um, quite often halfway down the skip and go to thoracics because let's say it's, it's a lot easier job and a lot faster and a lot more predictable. But going back to 20 years, yes, there are a lot more women today to what they were 30 years ago in cardiac surgery, but equally, there are a lot more cardiac surgeons today to what they were 30 years ago. In the future, when the training doesn't, would not require to be that long, because people like me who are trained in cardiac and thoracic and pediatric and adult and congenital and other congenital, to end up doing just only adult, it's unnecessary. Yeah, so you can streamline the training, reduce the time, allow people to go through a process by which they, uh, they learn things that they will practice rather than things that yeah, it's good to know, it may be beneficial, but you never do it again. Then you have the streamlining the assistance. I think that every person should look into a specialty or a profession that doesn't have a goal only, but is part of uh, a life uh, of that person uh, and uh, should the person enjoy the life in the years uh, of development and progression. Highly likely the new generation of people will change one or two or three jobs in their working span of 30 or 40 years. So unless the degrees have dropped, the assistant gets in there, you can make changes and move on faster. I think that is going to be the major determinant in changing people's careers and perspective into various specialties and career jobs. What would uh, Mr. Krasopoulos say to George, first-year medical student? Oh, just if you like it, go and do it. You have to seize the day. If, you, if this is what you want to do, you can only try it, and you have to see it from the inside. But you have to be truthful with yourself. If you, if you think that you like it, but you don't actually like it, you should cut it. So when I was, uh, let's say, first year in the medical school, uh, I, was, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. In the second year in the medical school, I had my own book in neurosurgery, in neuroanatomy. And then in the summer, I went to Shadow for a week, neurosurgery. Started on Monday. By Friday morning, when I went back to the ward, I didn't want to go through the door. I sat outside, I said, this is not for me. And I turned around and left. Okay. Uh, so you have to be honest, truthful, and you know, make a decision. A lot of people just go through years. I have a lot of junior doctors who go through years and then they finish medicine or whatever, and then they still don't know what to do, and the years go by, and then they go for a, uh, a year in Australia and another year in the looking around and before they wake up they are, I don't know, 30 and they haven't even started yet. The competition is, uh, is not your next door friend that you had at medical school. Your competition is 
uh, people come from India, from Japan, from Korea, from uh, or Europe or North America, from Brazil, from everywhere. So, uh, and some of those guys, they don't take two years to go and enjoy themselves. So you need to make decisions and stick with them and um, project what you want to do in the years to come. And so you're talking about competition. How, what are the advices that you would give to someone who wanted to do cardiothoracic surgery? And like, how do you think they should approach this? I think they should uh, today have to go and use the system and expect it to be used by the system. Um, but they have to keep their eyes open. The eyes and ears is not only what your cardiac surgeons that they teach you, but this is not only a, the only thing that you should learn. You should learn things outside cardiac surgery, which will influence the way you practice in the years to come, because the one who starts cardiac surgery now really will, pra will practice in about eight to 10 years from now. And in eight to 10 years, things will change. When I started cardiac surgery, we used to cut the patient from the neck to the umbilicus, and then both legs from the groins all the way down to the feet, okay? And if we couldn't find the vein, we cut the arms as well. So the patient had an incision who started in the neck and probably finishing down in the legs and both arms. Now, my patient gets a 10 centimeter incision, two lyronics, everything is endoscopic. Patient goes home in four days and stop taking painkillers in a week or two. So within my lifetime, that happened. Now, if you were a trainee today, when the speed is double or triple or quadruple, you would expect in 10 years, probably to be doing things that you've never been taught. But you have to be able to educate yourself in those. So you need to be able to understand how algorithms and AI works, uh, how uh, um, computing or robotics uh, will influence you, um, what parts of whatever I'm teaching today probably are not going to be there tomorrow. And, uh, you need to make certain decisions on which way you're going to go. So where are you going to subspecialize? What I'm going to do? And be truthful yourself, because sometimes you, you, you jump in onto a ship thinking that uh, it's wonderful, it's going to go to Greece. But halfway down to Greece, you realize it's too hot for you and uh, you never subscribe to have so much sun and you prefer the rain. So. You have to be able to dock somewhere, jump off the ship and go to another ship that goes to England. Yeah. And what do you think, uh, George, as a first-year medical student, would tell you, Mr. Krasopoulos, seeing you now and your career? Probably, I would say, well done, because realistically you've gone through a lot over the years and decades. Um, and... Uh, I don't think it's an easy way or an easy life. Um, so much for, for uh, the person, the George or every George that is going through. 
uh, you have to have sacrifices. You lose a lot of friends because you don't have any talk to them. You make a very limited number of new friends. And, but the life is full of experiences. And whatever George of 30 years ago or 35 years ago would say to me, probably is irrelevant to the George of today who will be talking to the future surgeons because the difference is enormous in between where I started and what is today happening. My 11-year-old son has got more information to what I ever had when I was 21. Uh, equivalent, if you look to the new starting, you know, new starting surgeon, I expect him to have a lot more information and capacity to what I ever had in his age. And finally, what do you consider your greatest achievement? I kept one wife and <laughs> have two children. <laughs> well done. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Krasopoulos. That was amazing.